Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is engineer, producer, entrepreneur, Sean Giovanni. First of all, I know we talked about this last week, but there are two interesting plagiarism cases that came up this week that I just couldn't resist. First, let me ask you a question. Is it possible to plagiarize yourself? Well, we're going to find out, but it looks like no. Last year, Lizzo had a huge hit called Truth Hurts, and she was sued by a group called The Raisins for ripping off a song that they and Lizzo both wrote a few years before called Healthy. Now, this was just one line that Lizzo lifted for her song. Nonetheless, it's turned out to a huge court case that's gone back and forth and back and forth. However, last week the court ruled in Lizzo's favor, saying that you don't automatically gain ownership of a derivative work. So what that means is, if you write a song and you had written part of it before and use it again, that becomes a derivative work. But if you have co-writers, they don't automatically get a piece of that. Now, believe it or not, a case like this actually went as far as the Supreme Court about 25 years ago. This is when Fantasy Records sued John Fogarty. Yeah, John Fogarty from Creedence Clearwater Revival. Fantasy Records basically owned Creedence's catalog, Lock, Stock, and Barrel, including the publishing. So when Fogarty waited until he was finally free of the contract from Fantasy and went to Warner Brothers after his first record was released, Fantasy turned around and sued him for plagiarizing his own work. Now this went as far as the Supreme Court, and finally the Supremes ruled in Fogarty's favor. So you can't really plagiarize yourself from before, which is a good thing to know, and If you do do something from before, just because you have a co-writer doesn't necessarily mean that they own a piece of your new work. But we have yet another interesting case here. Nicki Minaj's Sorry borrowed a big piece of Tracy Chapman's Baby Can I Hold You? And Nicki Minaj went on the record by saying, yeah, we took a big piece of this song. So when Tracy Chapman came back suing her, she basically said, look, If I'm not free to do this, this is going to hurt artists everywhere because they won't be free to experiment. Well, Tracy Chapman's people basically said, look, you can experiment all you want. You just can't release it. To which Minaj said, I didn't release it. It was leaked to a radio station and then it went online and went viral. I didn't actually release it. So now there's a big court case over this. Did she infringe or not? Now, I don't think there's any question. Nicki Minaj admits that she copied part of Tracy Chapman's song. So that's pretty cut and dried. What her attorneys are actually arguing here is that what's at stake here is the artist's ability to experiment. So we'll see what happens. I think this is kind of outrageous. And that's why I bring it up, because these are two cases that you just think, wow, I don't see how they'd even get to court. And yet here we are. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. You can also sign up for my free vocal mixing techniques mini course at bobbyosenskycourses.com and download free ebooks and PDFs on mixing, production, mastering, and social media at bobbyosenskycom forward slash free hyphen resources. 
Now, it was just announced that the NAM show for 2021 is going to be canceled. That's the winter NAM in Anaheim in January. Everybody goes to. I think anybody who's ever gone to all of the trade shows that are music or audio oriented will always say that winter NAM in Anaheim is the most fun. It's the biggest crowd. There's the most things to do there. And in general, it's just a lot of fun, a lot of it because it's close to Hollywood. So you get an influx of all the Hollywood music people coming down. Now, NAM officials say they're actually going to replace it with an online virtual trade show for an entire week called Believe in Music. This is not the first conference that is actually doing that. And pretty much it has to be that way for an organization to survive. If they're going to collect dues, they have to provide something. If they can't provide a conference that's live, then they have to do it virtually. That being said, this may be a good time for Winter NAM to actually shake some things out. Many would say that NAM has lost its way. Originally, this was just for music store dealers to buy things. This was way before the internet. The only time they saw anything that was new or was about to come out was at a NAM trade show. So they go there to buy, and that's why the attendance was always restricted to music store owners and their employees. Today, we pretty much know what's going on before it even happens because the news is leaked online. We see the product. We see everything about it. We see the beta tests. We see everything online. So one might argue that a NAM trade show isn't really needed anymore. Now, that being said, it's a lot of fun. And probably what's the most fun is if you've been in the music business for a while, then you go there to see some friends that you usually don't see otherwise. That being said, it's expensive for manufacturers. And especially if a manufacturer has to attend a lot of different trade shows. I remember when I was in that part of the business, I could go to a trade show somewhere in the world every month or twice a month even. There were that many trade shows that were going on and they were all significant in their own way. Trade shows are expensive for a manufacturer though. The floor space is expensive. The hotel rooms are expensive. The meals are expensive. Travel, not to mention the union charges for setup and teardown. That's something that people kind of forget about. All that is very expensive for a manufacturer. So now many of them have to make a hard choice on which ones they're going to go to. So do you go to NAM? Do you go to AES? Do you go to NAB? Do you go to all of them? Just some of them? I think now that we're more or less in the virtual trade show realm, they're going to see more of this happen. And we'll probably see trade shows ratchet down a level or two. And I'm not so sure that's a bad thing. As we've seen from the Democratic Party convention and from other trade shows, being virtual isn't such a bad thing. And in fact, it could be a lot better for all involved. My guest this week is producer, engineer, and owner of the record shop studio, John Giovanni. He's worked with clients in the studio ranging from Tim McGraw, Big and Rich, Zach Wilde, The Wallflowers, Juicy J, and Lil John. Sean is also passionate about helping creatives build a sustainable business around their art and achieving their goals. Beyond his work at the record shop, he's also a co-founder of MindMap, an online training course designed to help artists find their unique intersection of art and commerce 
to feel longevity in their career. During the interview, we talked about working through your problems when the worst happens, developing a client base, taking advantage of opportunities, how mentors are more accessible than you might think, and much more. I spoke with Sean via Zoom from his record shop studio outside of Nashville. Tell me how you get started in the music business. Man, where, where did I get started? Well, I, I think that it really started as a, at, a, at a young age, just the passion for music and the, the impact that music had on my life as a kid. I, had, I was really fortunate in grade school to have music theory class be part of our just education. It wasn't an elective or something. It was just part of the classes that, that we all had. And in that class, I have a memory of learning about orchestral instruments and how they were used to depict a, a visual scene. Um, before, you know, we had film and that really stuck with me. And I, and I started to recognize the way that music and different songs, you know, commercial songs made me feel in different ways based on the sounds and the, the impact and the, not just the lyric and the emotion, but how the, how the sounds were created and the atmosphere that a, that a song had. And so that really got me interested in production. And I, uh, I just kind of started from figuring it out one, one step to the, to the next in uh, middle school. I, saved up some money and got a four track cassette recorder and started to just mess around with that in my parents' basement. And then in high school, started recording my friends' bands and um, writing my own music and uh, recording singer songwriters and uh, vocalists and hip hop artists. Uh, and uh, just, just really experimenting, just having fun. And then I started to learn about these uh, engineers that were making the records that I had fallen in love with and realized that, well, there, there's a career in this, I guess. There's a way that you can make a living doing this thing. And, uh, and so I started researching that and, and looking into it. Uh, I went to a, a small recording school in Minneapolis. And when I was uh, 20, I moved to Nashville and uh, just got my uh, career started. Uh, so that, that was kind of like the, what, what led me into following this path. Okay. So what happened when you got to Nashville? <laughs> well, I moved here for a job at a major studio here in town. And uh, when I got here, that job fell through. And... I had already interviewed basically everywhere and it was a challenging time. I moved here in 2006 and uh, during that time, the re recording industry was struggling, but the, the music industry was struggling. Recording studios were probably getting the, one of the biggest, you know, brunts of, uh, of the decline of everything. And there just weren't the budgets there. And so, I mean, I couldn't get somebody to let me sweep their floors and I begged. Uh, and the, the, the studios that, that were taking on like interns and stuff, they had relationships with a lot of the universities in town. And, uh, I, I just, I couldn't, didn't, couldn't really find an opportunity. So I, I found this, this one opportunity for a job at a, at a studio finally after kind of interviewing everywhere and talking to all the studio managers and moved here for that. But then after I got here, it, it, uh, you know, it fell through. So once that happened, I was pretty like devastated at first. And a bit confused about what to do next because I had felt like I had exhausted all the resources that I could think of at the at that time of people that I could reach out to or opportunities that I could look for. And uh, I sort of I remember sitting uh, on the balcony of this apartment uh, building that I, that I had on uh, Music Row, and uh, just kind of looking down the street and thinking about what the heck am I going to do? Because uh, I moved here with a plan of you know having a job, had enough money to survive for a couple months. And uh, I just, I guess I started thinking about the, the initial times that I had really fallen in love with the idea of music and all of producing music and all the time that I had spent 
as a kid doing it and, and how hard I was working in school to prepare myself to move to Nashville. And I just sort of made this agreement with myself that I was going to figure this out uh, one way or another. And that night I started getting creative on how I could find people that might need someone like me with the skill sets that I, that I had. So I jumped on Craigslist in the music section and, and just started sending messages to people. Uh, I started uh, looking for shows in town where artists would be songwriter rounds where artists, songwriters would be playing and maybe they would need somebody to cut a demo for them. Uh, and then I just started going out every night and trying to find new people that I could meet and, and start to kind of figure things out. And slowly but surely that started to come together. It's funny you should mention that because especially going out and talking to people, I've interviewed numerous people over the course of the podcast. This is number 332. And one of the things that keeps on coming up is, you know, if I don't go out and show my face for a while, I find my work kind of tails off. And this is with Grammy winners sometimes that they're saying, you know, if I'm just too secluded, all of a sudden I find I'm not working and I have to go out and talk to people. Now it's kind of different in the COVID era, but this is prior to that. It's a theme that keeps on recurring. Definitely. And that was something that took me a little while to recognize. So I went through this, this stage of, you know, just coming to town, didn't know anybody and, and was finally able to start to build a little momentum with the, with the client base and, started getting busy for a little while and I'd be busy for like a month or so. And then during that time, I would, all I would be where only place I would be would be in the studio. So I quit going out to those shows and those places where I was meeting the folks that I was at that point working with. Once those projects were over, I didn't have a deep enough client base to where people were just calling. So now there was nothing left. And I went through this cycle a handful of times before I started to recognize, even when I get busy, I got to figure out how to find that, that balance. And, uh, and so that was a, a really big learning process and definitely important. What, the way that I, that I focus on it now, though, is, is recognizing that, as you mentioned right now in the, you know, the, the COVID world of not being able to have all the events that we would typically have. But even before that, um, I, uh, I, 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 I'm pretty selective with the, the places that I choose that I would go or events that I would go to and make sure that it's really going to be you know, worth it. I also spend a lot of time just making phone calls and contacting people and just in breaks in between sessions, you know, to say, I haven't heard from that person in a while. Maybe I should give them a call and just say, Hey, um, we, uh, I try to stay engaged as I can on uh, as much as I can on social media. Um, we have a blog on our website that helps with, uh, people reaching out and kind of keep, keeping in touch that way. Um, our, our newsletter did really well for a long time, but that started to kind of trail off a little bit because people are tired of just getting another email in there you know, their inbox, but even that is still helpful. I mean, we, we have a, a few thousand people on our, on our list and um, we get dozens of replies that, you know, direct stuff based on if we have, you know, interesting enough information to share with them. Uh, I've really focused on trying to find ways to like, to be a, a resource for the people that I work with. And in, in turn, it, it seems to be a little bit easier to keep that flow of stuff happening without necessarily having to go out and attend things at the same frequency, you know, that I used to. Uh, but it's definitely important that it's a, you know, consistent, consistent thing. Uh, before all of this happened, uh, my practice was to look on um, a couple different websites that have list listings of kind of networking events and panels and seminars and that sort of thing. And uh, each month, and I would just plan out looking at my schedule, make sure that at least once a week I was going somewhere. Uh, and then as things pop up, uh, and I'm, I'm, when all of the, the COVID situation started, I wanted to make sure that my routine didn't change too much because I was really 
uh, I was a bit fearful of how easy it would be to allow the, uh, the, my routine to change and in turn have that really have a big you know, impact on things. So I just looked at what are the things that I normally do that I wouldn't necessarily be able to do now and how could I replicate that in a virtual setting? Um, so now it's a bunch of uh, Zoom um, seminars and panels and networking things. And um, we've tried to organize some, uh, you know, within, within our community and uh, just trying to stay active in that rather than just saying, well, there's, you know, there's no events I can go out to. So I guess I'll just, you know, wait until we can start having events again. Uh, I, I immediately went online and started looking for organizations that were putting on virtual events. Um, the Recording Academy has been great at doing that. They've been putting together some, some really great stuff. How did the studio come about? At a certain point early on in my time in Nashville, I, I got this feeling that if I wasn't able to find the type of apprenticeship or internship opportunity to sort of get my foot in the door, I needed to be able to create a reputation without having one yet. And I started to get an idea about how I could build a, a brand around a production philosophy and make my work or the people that would come to me more about coming to like an organization that would, would support them rather than just a freelance gig worker. And um, I'm not sure where that idea came from, but I remember it being a, a thought process in what the record shop was initially. So at first I didn't have a studio. I had a little apartment on Music Row that I had some gear in. And that was the first place that I could bring people in to record. And then eventually I started working out of studios around town that I would just rent for projects that I was working on. And then I had my little apartment set up to be able to, you know, finish things. And, uh, and so I, I, I it's, it started first as a production company and I would still really consider the record shop more of a production company than a traditional studio because 90% of the work is stuff that I'm producing or engineering. Um, not necessarily sessions that are getting booked. Um, but about three years ago, I had finally kind of grown into this situation where it made sense for me to invest in a larger commercial property. And I was able to afford it at that at this time. And, um, and I finally found a place that would be a really good fit for it. So for the past three years, I have had my own large format tracking facility. And now that percentage of projects that I'm producing versus the ones that get gets booked here is balancing out um, a little bit more. But initially, it didn't really start as the idea of a studio. I figured there's enough studios already. But if I could create a production company that would serve artists in a unique way, and not just artists, but you know, companies as well, uh, that, that I could maybe find my niche and like kind of set, set myself apart a little bit and not rely as much on like one gig that would lead to the next, but building more of a brand that had a reputation that would lead to you know, referrals and lead to long-term uh, work with a smaller group of, of people uh, rather than just trying to, to, um, to just book every, you know, every day out for the studio, right? I also felt like there was a ceiling with the idea of a traditional recording studio. At a certain point, the studio is booked every day, and um, you know the, you can't you can't continue to build in that you know in that in that way. So I wanted to be able to create something that would allow me to continue to grow and evolve as the industry did, and uh, and and that's that's how the 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 idea of the record shop as a production company kind of came together. Uh, but uh, having a studio was just really out of necessity because I couldn't get anybody to hire me. <laughs> Well, there's two things I noticed about the studio looking at your pictures. One is the fact that you don't have consoles. The second one was the fact that you have kind of like the Abbey Road layout. It looked like where the control room is upstairs overlooking the tracking room. Um, yeah. So the, the, the console is, is just, it was really because early on, I was a, really only able to afford one piece of gear at a time. 
So I started building up my, uh, my equipment, you know, based, um, just based on what I was using the most. So if it felt like uh, a new type of compressor would help or a new type of preamp would help, I added that to the rack and slowly, but surely that started to grow. Uh, and then I got to the point where I had a, a pretty solid, you know, 32 channel multi-track studio, just not on a console. And then I, I thought, well, I got all the different colors and tools, you know, that I have. So, um, I get a control surface. I have the console equipment, but it's just in racks as opposed to on the, the console. And, um, and so it was more of an economical thing just the way that my career grew and the financial situation. I wasn't in a position to, you know, to invest in a massive console at that time. I had to build slowly, uh, over time. And, uh, and then you get comfortable working in that way. So I just kind of, you know, s stick with it. Uh, and it works well. Um, we have a really wide variety of, uh, of gear to, to choose from for the signal path. We, we run through a Bur Burl converters and I mix through a Burl, um, Vancouver, um, summing mixer, um, and, uh, get, get great results that I'm really, um, happy with this, the studio itself. Um, I didn't build, uh, I bought it. Uh, it, it had been here for about 10 years, um, before I bought it. And, uh, the, the guy that built it, um, I think was just trying to, uh, increase the real estate on the tracking room floor. So his idea was actually to just have the, the room that is upstairs that goes up the stairs. That was just a third ISO booth, uh, in the way that he built it. And, uh, so there's two ISO booths downstairs and then one upstairs. And I transformed that into a dual purpose room. So now we have our B room control room is in there. And then it also serves as an ISO booth. So it's large enough to have our B room rig on back on the, the wall. And then we have a little space that a musician can sit for, you know, for doing overdubs if I'm using all three ISO booths. And uh, what that allowed me to do is be able to always make use of the tracking space. So if I'm um, mixing uh, for a week, but somebody needs to come in and cut vocals um, or, or do piano tracks or lay down overdubs that I have another room that they can work in that's tied into the whole um, facility. So it's, it's really a, um, a dual control room and then uh, main tracking room and then ISO booth uh, set up. And that was just the way that I, when I moved in here, I looked at the space and how can I make the most use of the, you know, of the space. Uh, and we do a lot of video projects as well. So uh, that also allows us to do um, pr pretty uh, handle audio for a video or recording a podcast or doing um, if, a, if a crew comes in and is shooting like documentary stuff, um, we can handle all the audio in that room and I can keep working in, in the main room. And, uh, and we're, we're able to keep a good flow of things coming through. Yeah, I noticed that you have a wide range of services that include video production and social media and all sorts of things like that, which I think these days you have to offer if you're going to stay busy because you can't be a one-trick pony anymore. Yeah, I think it, um, I think it de depends. I, I believe probably if you're starting right now, maybe that would be, or even I guess when I, you know, when I started, uh, but the reason that I got involved in those other things is because I was excited about them. When I was working, I, I found early on that my passion for producing and engineering was find an artist that I, that I could really connect with and, and work with creatively beyond just the technical aspect of things and, uh, and be able to, to kind of grow with them. So a lot of the, the artists that, you know, that I've worked with, I've worked with for years and, and the ones that I'm just starting to work with now, I hope to be able to work with for a good portion of, you know, of their career. I really look for, for music that, that just excites me and, and that I'm passionate about and that I can really get behind. Uh, and so in doing that, I, uh, early on, I was 
uh, you know, developing maybe a, a deeper relationship than I might if I was just brought into just kind of like engineer and overdub session and then they move on to the next, you know, uh, studio and, and, uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, I was more focused on this idea of like long-term, you know, growth with the artists. And initially all the artists that I was working with when I first started were just, you know, up and coming. They were, they were like me, they were new to town. They didn't have many resources yet. And um, that's why they were willing to work with me at that time. And, uh, and I started to recognize that they would talk about, you know, I'm looking for a videographer. Do you know anybody that does that? Or I'm looking for someone to help me put these graphics together. Or we'd finish, we'd be working on the album and they would start thinking about the artwork. And then I would hear these stories about, you know, I hired this guy and he took off with my money and I couldn't, and we, we planned on this thing. And like, and I don't know if I'm like paying the right, and I don't know how to explain to this guy how I want this edited. And I thought, well, you know, I really understand this artist creatively and I could probably explain what they want in some cases a little better than they can because they many times, like as creatives, we have trouble like being able to vocalize what it is that, that all these thoughts that are going on in our, in our heads. So being able to have like an outside perspective uh, that has a really good relationship with the artist already to be like an intermediary uh, kind of in the, you know, in the way that a manager uh, would have done that when, when more, when, more uh developing artists had management you know now you sort of have to develop yourself to get to the point where the manager's gonna look at you versus the the development deals that were much more common you know in the past so i started to look at that like kind of shift in how things were working and thought that that would be a great way that i could help artists in a, in a um, deeper way uh beyond just the production that i was doing with them um, and, but I also found that I was excited about it. And if I didn't enjoy it, I don't think that it would be helpful to just try to have a bunch of different services for the sake of having them. I think my, when I look back on it, I think the reason that I was able to keep this stuff like organized and have good success doing, uh, uh facilitating in multiple different types of production stuff is because I, I was interested in learning about it. And, uh, and also that I trust the people that are masters at doing that. So like my goal is to be in a studio and make records with artists. Uh, and so our, but our, but I thought as a company, we could provide these variety of services and it also helps offset overhead. So I can really focus on projects that I want to be working on. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and so that, that was kind of why that happened. And I think how it's worked, uh, worked for, for me, but I mean, I know plenty of people that make a living just mixing records and they're happy and, you know, and, and, uh, doing well. So I think it's kind of a case by case thing, but I will say that I feel like I have a bit more freedom and there's definitely, uh, an advantage to being able to have these different sources of revenue that are coming in that, that gives me maybe a little more flexibility to choose what I'm working on, which avoids burnout and, um, allows me to stay uh, consistently excited about what I'm, what I'm involved in. I'm friends with a lot of mixers and that's all they do. And one of the things that they tell me, I'm not going to share any names here, but I hear it a lot, is that I'm so burnt out from this. I'm so tired of it. And it's like, oh, I have to go mix. Oh. As opposed to engineers that are doing tracking as well as mixing, where they have a variety of things going on, or producer where there's always something new that's happening from client to client, where you don't quite have that. But mixers, there's a high burnout factor there, even though it doesn't seem like it on the surface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. I really enjoy the the, the diversity and versatility of the of the stuff that we can do. Um, 
just a lot of fun. I mean, this week we had tracking sessions. I'm, I'm mixing uh, this afternoon, uh, cutting vocals. We had a rehearsal for a video shoot we're doing, you know, next week. And just as all these things are kind of coming through, it just, it create it brings a lot of positive energy and creativity in the, in the room. And, uh, and just, it keeps me motivated to, and, and happy and excited to like wake up and like, okay, cool. What do we got today? Uh, and, it, and it's something new and, and fresh and, and exciting to work on. I think it also helps with staying creative and, and, uh, you know, and, the, and doing a kind of wide range of things. I just think the important thing is to not try to do all of it yourself. You know, in telling me your story before, one of the things I noticed is you got the entrepreneur bug very early on, whether you realized it at the time or not. And that's one of the things that at least traditional schools don't teach you so much is the music business is all about being an entrepreneur. Because even if you get a job, it's very short term for the most part. So you have to learn how to get your own work, which is being an entrepreneur. So I know that's something near and dear to your heart, that whole concept. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, my parents taught me that from a young age, and I didn't recognize these lessons that I was learning back then. But the first lesson that I had in, in business, I wanted a swing set when I was uh, four or five years old. And my parents said, well, we, uh, you can get a swing set, but we're going to have a garage sale next weekend and you can go out at the end of the driveway and sell lemonade. We'll help you. We'll pay for the lemons and we'll help you make the lemonade. And, uh, and whatever you make, well, you can go to the store and you can buy a swing set with it. Uh, and, uh, I said, okay, cool. You know? And so you're selling lemonade for like five cents a glass. Like, I don't know, probably made like probably $3 or something, you know? But, but, uh, uh, my dad took me to the, the store and we picked out the, you know, the swing set. And, um, I think it was a really good, good lesson. And throughout my, um, youth when I was growing up, uh, it was always that way. There was, there was never a, um, a situation where I was just sort of like given something without having to put in the work to, uh, you know, to do it or, or earn it. And, uh, the first piece of, uh, uh, equipment I got was a couple of turntables. I wanted to learn how to DJ when I was uh, about like 12. And uh, my mom actually just sent me a picture of this because she was cleaning stuff out at her house and she, and she found it. Um, they had me write like a, a loan application to them. And uh, I mean, it was for like 600 bucks or, or something, you know, but uh, I, was, I was cutting grass um, uh, over the summer. And uh, I said, I, I need to cut this many lawns over this period of time. And, uh, and as I'm paid for cutting these lawns, I'm going to pay this off. And this is how I'm going to be able to do it. And they said, okay, well, if you can make that much, then this is how much we'll give you. And uh, and, uh, and I, I, we both signed it and, uh, uh, I guess that was my first, you know, but well, my second lesson that I, you know, that I remember from that. So like it was def they definitely helped me, um, with that, but that sort of, uh, I guess once you got, once I got into the, uh, idea of the career in the recording industry, everything that I was told when I was in school was just like, you know, get your pro tools certification, learn the software, understand the gear, and then go get an internship. And then you work your way up. And all the books that I had read about engineers that I, you know, that I looked up to, that was the, that was the process, you know, they, they got the, the sweeping the floor gig. And then eventually an engineer doesn't show up for a day and, and, you know, some day and the, the artist is in there waiting to go and then they got their opportunity to, you know, to jump in. And so in my imagination, that was how it was going to work when I got out of school and, you know, and moved to Nashville. Uh, so it, that, that entrepreneur type thing didn't really come back until, that idea of what I expected the career path to look like was sort of shattered. And then, but then I was very fortunate to have that training as a, as a kid to be able to just look at it and say, well, this is what you want. And so you're going to have to figure it out one way or another. And, 
I had enough of that experience to be able to jump into it and, and feel confident, I guess. And, you know, as confident as you can, when you're, uh, you know, 20 years old and in a town, you don't know anybody and, uh, and just, you know, trying to, trying to figure it out, but that had a lot to do with it. Definitely. And now, yes, I'm, now I'm just, I'm very excited about it. And now it becomes this, it's, it's, uh, you know, as you start to find success in entrepreneurship, you, you start to recognize the freedom, also the, sacrifice that comes with doing it. But I think there's a lot to gain from that, that sacrifice. And now it's exciting. So now I'm just always on the lookout for like, what's the next fun idea and, you know, and cool thing that we can dive into. Um, and most recently that's been live streaming. Tell me about mind map. Mind map was a, a program that, uh, that I created last year, um, with a, a friend of mine named Ricky Mendez. Um, Ricky is a professional in building, um, corporate sales teams. And, uh, I have had some good success in figuring out a path of entrepreneurship in the recording industry. And I was getting a lot of calls from people that were looking for help with building either their business or in a tough spot where they, they felt like they just couldn't wrap around, you know, how do I really make a career out of this? And I was meeting a lot of very talented people and, and people that were, that were interning at the studio or apprenticing with me or artists that I would work with. And it seemed to be the common issue was understanding how to take their art and then look at it as a business and not and go through that process in a way that's not uncomfortable or that would feel inauthentic. Because I think that that's something that happens a lot more with artists maybe than, you know, producers and engineers, but that once you, the money gets involved and people start getting uncomfortable and it's not as artistic anymore and, you know, you feel like you're selling out and, you know, and that, that sort of thing. And then, so I would talk to them a lot about I don't, my, my experiences and my thought processes on how to put things together. And I saw that it became helpful um, for, for people. And we, I had, and, and just in doing that and the, the apprentices that I have here at the, the studio every semester, um, seeing their growth and their career. And that was really exciting. And uh, I just started getting this idea. Maybe there was a way to, to scale that, to reach more people and have a bigger impact. I had a couple guys that were, that were working um, through internships and apprenticeships with me and they got some really great opportunities and they had, you know, send me a letter and say, Hey, you know, the, what you taught me about this and this was something I never learned in school. And I'm so grateful to do that and it made me feel great. And it made me recognize that maybe there was a, I was in a position in my career now where I could have a, another level of impact with what I do. So I set out to create a program that would help people nav help help creatives navigate the idea of business uh, from a foundational standpoint. I think there's plenty of information out there about how to mix a record and tips for getting your songs on Spotify playlists and all that stuff is great. But the artists that I, and, and producers and engineers that I see that are having trouble sustaining a career um, through it, it, it often come, they have all the knowledge to understand like kind of like what to do, but it's a process of doing it consistently and then being able to just push past that adversity and have the right frame of mind and perspective on things. And, uh, and I felt like I had enough experience at that point to be able to share some, some useful stuff. Um, but I hadn't put together something like that before. And I hadn't really done any training other than um, some, some like workshops and like adjunct teaching and like that sort of thing. So I, I met this guy, Ricky, who was, who was uh, speaking at a record label here in town. And 
he was talking to more of the the corporate um, side of the of the love label, but one of the artists that I work with was signed there, and he invited me to come and, and hang out. Um, and I loved his approach to the idea of mindset and perspective from a scientific way. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of like motivational stuff. It gets me amped up in the mornings and when I'm working out, and like, and some people might think it's you know it's hokey or whatever, but but I I love it, and I think that energy just it, it helps me personally. But the one thing that that kind of bugs me about some of that stuff is that it's a lot of um, philosophy without implementational tactics. It's, uh, you know, uh, you should just feel this way because you should and just be positive because it's easier and, you know, but without examples of how to really implement that on a consistent basis. And so Ricky was given this um, this uh, presentation and he was saying all the things that I wished people would, would say in that, you know, having talking about the similar um, ideas, but then giving examples of like exercises that you could do and processes that you could go through. So um, after that, I, I came up to him and we, and we, uh, we started talking and, and we became friends. And probably about a year after that, we, I, I came up with this idea and I said, hey, what would you think about putting together this course? And uh, I can handle, you know, the, the creative creatives or like music industry perspective side of things. But I'd really love to have someone that's a professional at business training to help me fill in the, you know, the missing pieces and, you know, put it together. He loved the idea. And so um, we spent a few months putting it together and then, um, you know, and then launched it. So it's still in, um, you know, in a growing stage where a lot of the people that are going through the the course are, are clients of mine and people that I'm, that I'm working with and we're getting a lot of feedback from it and, uh, and, and updating it as we go along. So I would consider it kind of like in a, in a beta stage at the, at the moment where it's completely accessible. You can go to the website right now and sign up and, uh, and do it. But we're, uh, we're, we're I really want to make sure that it's impactful and that, it's has information that you're not going to hear in the same way anywhere else, because I think that's something else that happens a lot. Um, I'm all about education and learning new things and the, and I'll get really excited about what seems to be something really cool. And then it's just kind of the same stuff before. So I wanted to be really careful about creating something that was authentically unique and could, and could really help people and help them, you know, build their business. So that was my goal with it. And that, that was, that's the intention and kind of the idea behind the content. One of the things that I find frustrating, of course, I have online courses too, and I've done plenty of workshops, Facebook workshops and whatever. And one of the things that I find frustrating is that you could lay out a plan, just like you're saying, do A, B, C, D, E, and you'll have what you're looking for. And yet people won't do it, or most of them won't. And I find that continually frustrating. It's like, well, if you just follow this, it's fairly easy, but you have to put in the work. And if you put in the work, you'll be successful. The old, uh, you can lead a horse to water concept. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That, that's a, it's a challenging you know, uh, thing with that. And that that's kind of what the course, a lot of what the course is about, giving people a new perspective on what their goals for their life and their career mean to them and how we can, change our perspective as creatives when we get burnout and when we're lacking inspiration and giving specific exercises, you know, on, on how to do that. But even with that, at the end of the day, you know, you still have to go through a process to commit to get that step, you know, out of the way. And, you know, and some people, um, you know, it's just, it's just not there. Uh, but you know, if, if everyone did it, then, um, you know, there would be no leaders, I guess. Yeah, I suppose. How has COVID changed your business? Well, you know, in talking about entrepreneurship, 
COVID didn't really change anything at first, aside from the way that I was doing things. But right, right away is this happened for like maybe the first week or so I was like, okay, cool. I'm not going to work 12 hours every day. I'll maybe take a little, you know, time off and, um, and I'll be able to have dinner with my wife every night and, uh, and be able to kind of catch up on some things that I wanted to read or, um, I, uh, I joined a master class and I started learning all this, you know, crazy stuff like cooking and I learned magic from Penn and Teller and just like fun things, you know, like that. But th- that only lasted like maybe a week, week and a half, uh, before I was just, I was just really like, okay, this isn't going anywhere. Cause at first it seemed like this is a two week thing and then we're going to get back to normal. And then that's where my mind immediately went into what can we do to give resources to the people that we're working with to help them grow and what changes are going to be happening. And, uh, and so the, the main thing that it changed was that um, for a couple months, we couldn't have people in the studio um, because businesses were shut down here in Nashville. And, um, and when that happened, I just started trying to get creative on how we could do things uh, virtually. Uh, audio Movers is a plugin that's been super uh, helpful for us. It allows you to take the audio from your DAW and send it to a, a private website where someone can stream it. Um, so that was helpful to be able to do mix revisions. Uh, I was able to have artists that had their own studio record vocals, and then I could use Zoom to run their screen so I could run their their system. And then I had a few people that we were in the middle of working on projects with, and they couldn't come into the, the studio, but I have a, a live recording rig that we bring out. It's in a couple rack units and has a computer. It's a full 32-channel Pro Tools rig that we bring on location to do live recordings. Uh, and I was like, well, there's no live shows, so that thing's just going to be sitting here for the next few months. And uh, I had a few artists that needed to cut vocals, so we put together a little like mobile studio package, and we drop it off at their house. Um, I give them instructions on how to set it up, and then we jump on, on Zoom. Um, I take control of their screen, and they set the mic up in a decent acoustic space, and, uh, and then we're able to, to keep working for you know basic things um, like that. Probably the, the, the biggest thing was um, jumping into live streaming um, capability. Uh, I saw that artists were having some good success with being able to jump and take advantage of that technology and use those platforms. And there were a lot of people watching and uh, buying tickets and tipping and um, some, some pretty good um, revenue coming in, uh, mainly with the independent artists that, um, that, I, that I work with. And, uh, and in seeing that, I thought, well, this is going to market that's probably going to grow significantly. And, you know, we just saw like live nation lost 98% of their revenue. So they're going to figure something out as a way. And, uh, and so as, as these events start coming up, they're going to need people that have the equipment to be able to make that happen. And I have a really great facility to be able to handle the audio as well. So uh, in a position where my revenue got uh, shredded uh, out of nowhere, um, I just, said, I'm just going to take a risk and I'm going to make a really large investment into live, a live streaming broadcast rig that we can set up to be able to provide support on location and remotely um, to be able to do really high quality live streaming events. And li- before I had the equipment, we had a uh, half dozen shoots booked. Wow. And, uh, and it just, I was really fortunate, I guess, to just sort of have this thought process and then take, I don't know, take the initiatives to go in and you know, and do it. And, and so for the past few few weeks now that we've had this, uh, this going, it's been incredible to have. And so that's been a, a new learning experience. Um, but I have a great crew of people that have, that have come on to, to help us with it. Um, we've done some really cool events and we have a, a bunch more that are, that are coming up. 
so that, that was probably the biggest kind of shift um, of, of looking at ways to be able to keep things rolling if we can't have big sessions in the room. Last question, Sean. What's the best piece of business advice that perhaps you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? The first thing that comes to mind is that having a mentor does not necessarily mean that you have a personal relationship with someone. We can find mentorship anywhere, in a book, in a podcast. Uh, and if you can't, I got really bummed out early on not being able to find a way to connect with the people that I really wanted to learn from and having trouble finding that mentor that I felt like I needed to apprentice under in order to be able to have the type of career that I had hoped for since I was a kid. And one of my friends gave me that perspective that, you know, mentorship can be more than just that personal thing, but you can look for it anywhere. Uh, and I think it just uh, continues with that idea of just resilience, that if you know how bad you want something and if it's something that you're really meant to do, you can figure out a way to, to do it one way or another. Uh, and the, uh, the idea of patience is something that I wish that I would have understood earlier on, that the whole the idea of like making it, I don't think ever really happens because as creatives, we're always on a constant search for something new. And that's what, that's what makes us good at what we do and from a creative standpoint, but it's also the curse that we have that oftentimes le leaving us feel like there's something left that we haven't got to yet. And uh, once I got that perspective, it really allowed me to have a different understanding of what patience means and a different appreciation for every experience that I have as being part of the journey. And there's not really like a final place that you get to. It's just the beauty of being able to go through this awesome process of, of making art on a, you know, on a daily basis. And that's what needs to be fulfilling about it. You can find out more about Sean at recordshopnashville.com. That's recordshopnashville, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. Listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. Go to bobbyosinski.com, select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.